Hey, everybody, this is John Hewlin, host of the Relationships and Revenue podcast. And today you're listening to part one of my two part interview with Catherine Starr. Catherine is a former two time Olympian, is also an amazing speaker. She is the author of Rescue Me, and you're going to learn more about her today and in the next episode following this one. So sit back, relax, and enjoy part one of my conversation. Life is all about relationships, and great leaders heavily invest in those relationships. On the Relationships and Revenue podcast, we talk about how to improve our most significant relationships at home so we can be better in our business relationships. We talk with experts from all over the world representing many disciplines about the best tips and strategies to become amazing people and amazing leaders. Welcome to the show. Welcome back, everyone, to the Relationships and Revenue Podcast. This is your host, John Hewlin. As always, thrilled to have each and every one of you with us today. And as you heard from the introduction, I have the one and only Catherine Starr with me. Catherine, how are you? Oh, I'm great. Thank you for having me on, and I'm so excited for our conversation today. I am too. I am too. Well, folks, if you don't know who Catherine Starr happens to be, let me share a little bit of her background with you. Now, she kind of let a little bit of the cat out of the bag. Uh, she is a two-time Olympian for Great Britain. She was back in 84 and 88. She was a competitive swimmer. And Catherine, correct me if I'm wrong, you are a, a speed swimmer, freestyle, correct? Yeah, I swam freestyle, a little bit of butterfly at the end, but mostly like 200 freestyle was my sweet spot uh, of an event. Yeah. Gotcha. So super fast in the water. <laughs> at least to somebody like me, you were super fast. And I actually, I do remember you in those Olympics. So. Oh, awesome. That's pretty That's cool. They say, they say, don't, you know, don't swim with sharks with an Olympian. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. All right. Let's see. Now you've also won uh, two medals at the uh, Commonwealth Games in 1986. And you're a member of three NCAA championship swimming teams at the University of Texas. Is that correct? That is correct. Wow. Oh, I almost forgot. You know, of course, 14 time All-American. Wow. I'm not even sure how you could do that 14 times, but that's impressive all on its own. And of course, since your time of re after retiring from swimming, you've started organizations like Safe for Athletes and then a Team Athlete Integrity. And we're going to get into both of those. Oh, you also happen to be an author, which you talked about in the introduction. We're certainly going to talk about your book. But do us a favor, kind of go back in time a little bit. Um, I want to know, how did you first even get into swimming? Was that your first love? Did you compete in more than one sport and eventually decided on swimming? So how did that work for you? So a great question. So um, my opening chapter of my book is pure passion. And it talks about, you know, how did I get into swimming? So I have two older brothers kind of share the quick story. And I think you can read this chapter for free online at Amazon. I think if you have Kindle, you can you can read it for free. So I'll just kind of share not to, you know, uh, you know, take away any of the, the book surprise. Right. Um, so I have two older brothers and we would go to the pool in the summer and I had a younger sister and my younger sister. I was at this point in time, like I'm like three, three and a half. And my younger sister would have been coming on one. So she, she, her birthday, July, summer birthday. And so my mother was always holding 
my younger sister. And then my two yeah. older brothers were old enough to like be in the pool. So I was in this like, you know, sort of nothing space. And I w- there was a kiddie pool and there was an adult pool. And so, and, and I was the only person in this kiddie pool. And I just talk about this like mermaid statue and this oak tree that like, and so it was shaded, this broken mermaid statue. And, <laughs> it, you know, just like a couple inches of water at the bottom and I'd have this little belly and I would, you know, rest it like a, a little alligator. And I would just watch the kids in the adult pool. Mm-hmm. And I just like spent this time just like, you know, being all alone over here. I mean, I wasn't alone, but I was, you know, it's like you're like, there was no other kids playing in there and, and they were playing Marco Polo and there's nothing like, you know, you would just hear like this Marco and then there's silence. Right. And then, you <laughs> hear, you know, and so, and it's in these kids and the splashing and it was, it, it was like music to my ears. Like mm-hmm. I just wanted to be part of that. Like I just wanted to do that. So after watching this all summer, Like, I don't know what came over me. Like, I study with my eyes. I think I've been like that my whole life. Like, I just, like, you know, I just, I take it all in. And I got up the courage one day to just run across the pool deck from the little pool to the adult. And I stood on that edge. And I remember, like, the lifeguard yelling at some kid. You know, they're all young kids doing young kid things, right? (laughs) And so I knew the attention wasn't on me. And I just like, I had this like, like euphoria of throwing my arms up in the air and like jumping in the pool. And it was like, all of a sudden I heard that silence. I heard the space between Marco and Polo. And it was just like this, like perfectly held moment, you know? And then all of a sudden, you know, I opened my eyes and there is somebody grabbing me throwing me back on the pool deck right and it was just like i'd found my heaven like i'd found my that you know like my purpose of just being in the water and and all those people who are your listeners who are listening who are water people you know what i'm talking about you know just that there's joy in water in itself and you know, and so then the lifeguard was like, you know, yelling at me because I couldn't swim. Like, you're not allowed to be in that pool and you can't swim. And for some reason, you know, I felt like I'd studied swimming, you know, just and here I am, just like this young kid. And I'm like, ah. and so I started swearing up and down like a good old three-year-old temper tantrum would be. <laughs> and, you know, and I just started swearing that I knew how to swim mm. and I wouldn't stop. And it was so bad. My mother couldn't calm me down. I was like screaming, I know. No, I was and I just like was convinced that I and I wanted you to believe me that I knew how to swim, but I'm three and you're an adult. Right. You know, I'm three and a half though. We count in half years at that age. Right. And so in even months. And so, you know, and so they had to get my dad off the golf course just to calm me down. Wow. It was just like, okay, my father's a doctor. Dr. Cripps, you need to come feed. Because my mother couldn't do it. My brother, like nobody could. I was just mm-hmm. like, I was adamant that I knew how to swim. So then my dad, he, it was just like, you know, he puts his hand on my head. Just this most comforting. He was my advocate. Like he was mm. my advocate in that moment. And he said to me, he goes, look, if you can swim a lap, I'll buy you a plate of French fries. Wow. So I'm like, okay, you know, that's a win-win for me. Right. You know? Yeah, I get to go and try. And so 
you know, so I, I got in the water. I, I mean, it's such a, like a, such a clear event for me. Like you're like, you're three and a half. How do you remember that? How do you not remember this? Like, you know, screaming, but how do you not remember just that moment your dad touches you with this like advocacy and love? Like that's what we come here for, you know, like that's what you want just mm. that protection. And I remember I swam a couple of strokes and I went to the side and then life goes, look, she'll know how to swim. And before he can finish that sentence, I pushed off. And I was just like, I'm gone. And I can't, and I was swimming. And then in the, in the pool, generally there's like this sort of line, at least, you know, back in the seventies and, you know, the it, it, pools are a little bit flatter, but there would be the deep end, you know, mm -hmm. like would go to the deep end. So there's like this line where it's like this invisible line that it's like, you know, do you know how to swim or not? Like mm. people go to that because you can kind of, you know, put your feet down. But as soon as you can't put your feet down, you ask yourself this question, like, do I know how to swim? Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and I just remember like just going through the line and it just gave me this confidence and knowledge, like, mm -hmm. I, right. And it was just, and so, you know, I touched, touched the wall and I then, you know, write about this in my first chapter. And it was like that night, I just went to bed with like such joy. I didn't want to take my suit off. Like it was. <laughs> You know, just that pure, innocent child of passion. Mm. So that's how I started swimming. Like, and, and that, you know, and the reason I opened my book up with that, because people like, well, you could kind of talk about your, um, you know, like the, your time at the Olympics, like, you know, and in, in mm. knowing that it's about abuse, you could kind of, you know, catch, you know, get this finite period of time. But what I felt was really important was to articulate what's lost what's taken you know in in you know and it's really hard for something that's so it's it's internal like it's this internal experience that defines you that you don't have like there's no real words to put to it so how can i put some words to understand the impact to understand somebody else's experience and so that's like why i i was so compelled to to start my story out that way and just hearing me share i mean you can hear the joy like you can just hear mm -hmm. the the passion right and sure. the innocence of all that and it was just you know there's just so many it's it's complex and it's simple all at the same time yeah i could see that all right so obviously three and a half very meaningful event in your life uh all the doubters that were there but the one your dad coming behind you saying show me Show me you can do it. And then you're just proving it to yourself, proving it to him, and certainly the naysayers that were around that you could do it. Okay, so you do that, and it's it's clear that water's in your blood, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 So take us back in time. All right, so how do you go from such a momentous event in your life to figuring out, not only do I, do I love the water and like being in the water, to... This is something I have to do. I'm really good at it and I need to show other people. How do you get there? So, well, in my particular case, um, there was a swimmer by the name of Jim Montgomery that lived a few doors down from us. And he was in the 76 Olympics and I'm eight years old. And I captured this pretty early on in the book. I think it's in the third chapter. And um, I had... Like I was the best swimmer in Wisconsin. I've broken every eight and under record there is. And like, I'm a star, like an eight-year-old 
star, right? You know, I just love the stars. And also, you know, there's a dynamic within my family, which I, I'll leave for the reader to kind of learn just, I think, as a dynamic in any family when there's a prominent athlete or a prominent person, you know, at a young age. And so, um, you know, and so this bond that I had created with my, with my dad, like at three, it, it carried on, you know, it sort of carried on with this, you know, talented young child. Um, and as, you know, here I am at eight with, you know, all the state records, probably except for breaststroke. I mean, but I was winning, you know, the MVP award of the, all the swimmates. And, and so that summer of 76, when I made, um, with the Olympics on, we had our neighbor, right? So it brought this bonding at another level between my father and I. Like it just mm. sort of created like this, like we had something in common. And I got like when there's four kids, like you're vying for attention, right? And so my commodity became my swimming ability and my ability to get my own time with my dad and to have like this special you know, I got to feel special with him. I got to feel special, you know, as a swimmer. But I had the talent, the love and the support. But I also watched my neighbor, Jim, and I'm like, I'm going to be an Olympian. And I just watched those Olympics and I knew it. Like there was nothing. It was kind of like the same thing. Like I knew I was going to swim. I knew I was going to be Olympian. Wow. It's just this like knowingness. And so, but what that knowingness does, like it drives you to a destination. But it closes off what's on the road there. Okay. So, sense to that? It, it, it does. Yeah, that makes sense. So, in this pursuit, at eight years old, you see your neighbor as a part of the Olympics, and you're like, okay, that's going to be me. I will be there. So, how does someone, it's because you're in an individual sport, not a team sport, how do you go about pursuing that from Wisconsin? Of all places. Well, I mean, we had five Olympians on my one street. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's all summer? No. So we had um, so we had uh Jim Montgomery five golds and we might have four golds and a silver or something. And, but he had five medals from the 76 Olympics. Wow. We had Sonny Carpenter, who was 14 in her first Olympics as a as a speed skater. And she went on and won the gold medal in 84 in road cycling. Mm -hmm. We had um, uh, a hockey player. I, I want to say Mark Johnson, last name Johnson, who was on the 1980 like hockey winning gold medal. Um, mm. um, we had a, another gentleman, Jay Mortensen, who swam with me. We were about the same age. Mm. And he was in the 88 Olympics and he was American record holder. and and um gold medalist as well how many is that did i get to five and then yeah, I think myself so. yeah then myself but we also had in madison eric hyden and beth hyden who were both mm. prominent ski speed skaters but th this was just in this tiny little maple bluff community that you know where the governor's mansion is is sort of small but it was just on this one one street so i was exposed to the idea of it mm. Then the other thing is that you're going to be an Olympian is that my dad, he was in medical school in 48, so he couldn't go to the Olympics and they mm. were in. Um, and then in 52, it was like during the Cold War and he only, only took eight people to be on the British Olympic team, but he represented Britain for three years. So that's what led me into representing 
Britain. And um, so the, I have a lot of, I mean, I'm my, both my parents are British and they emigrated to the States. So I have a British passport, although I was born in the U.S. So I, I talk like American, but, you know, so, but I have like my family, they're, they're all like from, they're all from uh, Britain. So that's what led me there. But then that bond that I was talking about was, you know, so how do I know it's going to be an Olympian? Because mm -hmm. my dad wanted to be in it. It was what broke his heart was the fact that there was a war and it affected his, you know, you know, his ability to be in the Olympics. Sure. And, you know, and I and I know that from my own sort of generation of time is knowing several of the 80 Olympians who didn't, you know, they didn't make the 84 or they were too young for 76. Yeah. Even the ones who went to other Olympics, there's still a hole in their heart. You know, so, and I, and I've seen it and you're like, okay, it's 40 years later. Why do you still have the hole in your heart? Cause there's the pursuit of being the Olympic and being in the best in the world. I mean, it's, if I knew Latin or if I, you know, could say Latin words, I'd, I'd say it, but it's really better, fitter, stronger, right? Which is what it sure. translates to from the Latin words. But it's also, for me, it's about this integrity in, of self, right? Mm. How can I? You know, and, and, it's, and it gives you sort of immediate feedback of developing and training to your highest capacity of self. Like it gives you mm -hmm. this like, go with it. Yeah. And so and that's part of like sort of the and that's part of the Olympic movement. And, you know, and, and it was a lot more pure when I swam because it wasn't as there wasn't a money element to it. You couldn't right. make it at all. You know, it was actually, you know, if you were starving. And you became an Olympian. Like that is like the ultimate, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and thankfully they've changed it so you can make a living doing it, but it certainly wasn't like that at the time. So there's something sure. changed there, but, but, you know, and I think that's part of like this, um, and we can get sort of more into your title, but I was like sort of thinking about sort of this relationship in revenue, you know, uh, name of your podcast, like, you know, mm -hmm. and it, and I'm like, well, it really fits in in the sense like, you know, we think about external relationships a lot, but there's that internal relationship that you have with yourself, mm -hmm. which is what you're developing in this pursuit of, of sport. Sure. Absolutely. You know, um, well, as a, as a bit of an explanation for the, the name of the podcast, why I named it the way I did, um, it, uh, it is my belief that if someone wants their, because uh, I deal predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly with entrepreneurs. If you want your business to be the absolute best it can be, it starts at home. So however your relationships go at home is how they go in business because you take it with you, whether that's in the next room or, you know, down the street or into the city, wherever it is that you live, it makes that big a difference. That's how important those relationships are. And so um, the revenue side obviously is about the money, but the money kind of takes care of itself when the relationships are taken care of, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, no, that's what I really liked about your podcast. I'm like, well, how does that relate? Cause I understood, you know, you know, working with and mostly addressing sort of entrepreneurship and those relationships. And I, and, and I believe all that, right. So it's like, and I'm on the same page as that. And I'm like, well, a lot of what happens, and we haven't even gotten into got into the harm of my experience, and maybe we should bring that no, up. Not yet, and kind of tie some of that in. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, no, we're getting to that so, because I want to know. 
I mean, I know that you're probably at this point as comfortable as you can be talking about that. But, you know, if at any point, you know, if I if I ask something that's somehow inappropriate, first of all, it wouldn't be on purpose. But if it is, you know, you don't have to answer. So that's the that's the great thing, you know, about about my show is, you know, I try and make all my guests look terrific. So hopefully that's what I'm doing with you. That's I view that as part of my job as the host. So so let's get into that part of it, because that that part of your story has impacted everything since in your life. So let's talk a little bit about how did something as ugly as this subject of abuse start for you? I mean, was it pretty early on or is it more when you got to the Olympic pursuit side of things? Where did that come in and what impact did that have on you? So, you know, so part of the the coach athlete dynamic, right, is you have you have a person who is there to develop your passion. And and what does and so as I developed myself as a swimmer, like it changed and I'm giving a little bit more sort of my psychology and how I broke it down within the, you know, not this isn't a legal explanation. It's it's just, you know, sort of witnessing my experiences between the dynamics that were created in this pursuit and what create and what what sort of ended up making myself so vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it started, um, you, you know, like when you're, you know, first of all, you heard my passion. Right. And so that, you know, I was watching um, yesterday um, a surfer. I forget his name, like Kai, maybe Kai Lenny or something. And he just had two babies. And it was like one of those Red Bull, you know, things. I always find that this was very helpful. And I was just sort of watching him and he was sort of saying like life had changed. And I'm like, and so, but he can't help himself, right, to be out on this wave. Mm. And he's a big wave surfer, right? To you and I, it's like horrifying. Like, how, how can you, you know, can you look at that? And I write about actually being stuck in, it's one of my favorite parts in the book, um, is being uh, stuck out in in um, the pipeline in Hawaii. And it oh, happened. Wow. And, and it happened. Um, I was in Hawaii kind of sort of back up. So since my book, you kind of read about it, know about me being sexually abused by my coach. So I was, I was sexually abused in May of 82. And then I didn't go to the Commonwealth Games. I didn't go to the World Championships or the Commonwealth Games unless I would continue to be harmed by this coach. Oh, wow. And so my father, who rightfully was like, he was like, you rightfully made those teams and, um, you know, you, you, you know, he wanted to make me feel better. So he's, why don't you go train with, you know, with the, with your club coach, you know, out in Hawaii. And so I'm like, okay, I love that. And, and, you know, and all this time there's silence, right? I'm not just coming out and saying like, oh, thank you. Thanks dad. You know, my coach abused me. Therefore, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go and go to Hawaii. So, right? so he didn't know. Oh no, no one knew. No one knew. And I and there's a letter that I received from him. Um, I don't know if I have page number, but there's a letter that he wrote to me. Mm-hmm. And part of that here's the book. This your and so part of that letter. Oh, uh, you mean this book right here? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I want to say I, I, I'll, it'll be it'll be worth going looking into. But part of the letter basically said, you know, I've spoken to your coach and. 
you need to do what he says, right? Quit acting out, hmm. right? So, and so there was a lot of coach preemptive stuff that went on in this relationship. Mm. So I was often, you know, sort of um, cut at the knees before I could even build up the courage to even say that I was being harmed. And at mm. the same time, I, I, like, I met two things of a loss. I met the loss of my dad's love, favoritism, right? Mm. And then I'm also at the loss of my passion, right? And so how do I get, you know, so, and you have like a, a, a young child's mind while I'm persistent and have a drive, but how do I get through all that? Like, how do I have a conversation to unravel all of that? Mm -hmm. You know, and so, and, and I was being character assassinated and, oh, she's just this American latchkey kid. So I had a lot of that to overcome. And you find a dynamic that happens a lot in sport is that there's a lot of blame onto the victim. Mm. And so, and they see it in a way like, oh, like, you know, especially around like a 16, 15, 16, 17 year old, there's a, there's a, a judgment based on their personality or a judgment based on a parental misgiving or, you know, so all of those things, you start compounding the thoughts of others and it creates a sort of layer of disconnect between you and your ability and your voice to come through all of it. So, you know, so when you can't say anything, so here I am in the North Shore and I got stuck out in the swell. And I think it's in the middle of the book, some writing in it. And I think it really, I really capture um, the powerlessness of being abused in that, in that writing and correlate my experience of, you know, you're, when you're stuck in a swell and as a swimmer, a lot of swimmers, like you, you don't want to swim, you get out of the pool. Yeah. There is no side. There is no ladder. There is no, there is no out because you want out, mm -hmm. you know? And so when you, when you, when I see that, and I think that also like just sort of that connection to the water, like how powerful it is in so many different directions. You know, I mean, the, it's, I don't want to be caught in that. And I think that just kind of shows you like, like the swell is the metaphor for all of the influences that you have to come up against to be able to speak up about abuse. Mm -hmm. And you're looking at this giant wall of water and you know that wall's going to kill you. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't go underneath it and you still don't know if you go underneath it, where you're going to come out on the other side. And that like is like the voice of an athlete that's stuck in a, an abuse that they are traumatized by. And, you know, and, and some people, they either don't know or if they do know, well, there's judgment. It's just, it's very, it's very, um, it's not supportive. Like we need to have smaller waves. If, you know, we calm, a calm way forward. Um, and that's what I hope that I've, you know, I've developed and bring into the world to address, you know, to address it. And I think I sidetracked a little bit, but hopefully there was well, some. Well, well, let me ask you this, just about the subject in general. Because you were an athlete that was performing at such a high level, if you can, try and compare that to like everyday kids who aren't doing that. So how, I don't even know if you would have the stats to show but a comparison like how often do you know about that it's happening with 
stellar high performing athletes versus like your average kid? Well, we actually did a survey with safer athletes. So I do have like a little bit of data to, okay. to so, you know, to kind of address that. Mm-hmm. So um, 80% of the people who did the, who did this uh, survey identified as experience, experiencing some kind of abuse. But the questions that we asked were, you know, if it happened a single time, we had asked for all, you know, emotional abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, and sexual abuse. Sure. And so we asked for a single, if it just happened once, or if it happened mm-hmm. like multiple times over a single season, or if it happened multiple times over multiple seasons. So mm-hmm. in all four categories, including sexual abuse, it happened multiple times over multiple seasons was the more predominant mm-hmm. So comparing it, um, the the person who may have happened to it once or just a couple of times in one season may have quit because of it, but we may, didn't have oh. that, right? And so, but athletes who are at the elite level, they've stayed in their sport longer. So you're going to see the athlete at the elite level mm-hmm. have a elongated experience of abuse because- sure. You're battling your passion, participating in your passion, and then leaving it all together and being a solution of like, where does that all go? Like, how do you get to another team? There may be no other team. There may be, you know, this is the head Olympic coach. You're like stuck in this environment. And certainly with like, you know, sort of financial contracts that are in certain situations, you're Mm -hmm. stuck in those too. So, but from a lay person or from a person who's not pursuing at a high level, they're pursuing something. It might be friendship. It Mm -hmm. might be, you know, it could be building self-esteem in one area and at the same time you're being harmed, you know? Mm -hmm. So you can have, like, you don't want to leave your friends, right? Or it gets you out of a situation that's worse, you know? So we don't know, like, so, you know, the thing is you're trapped. You're Mm -hmm. you're in this, in this, you know, how do you provide all these resources and education, you know, to change that? And so, so like, it doesn't matter your level of accomplishment. What matters mm-hmm. is that we develop young people in a way that they can separate their passion from harm yeah. and be able to speak up against it and sure. you know change their path fire, you know, and just develop, you know, develop the voice of the athlete. That's why mm-hmm. when I first started Safe Athletes, it was I was given athlete a voice. Yeah, I could see that. Um, but let me ask you this. Based on your experience, have you seen more of these various types of abuse happening for these high-performance athletes in individual sports or team sports, or does it even matter? No, it doesn't matter. So there's um, okay. there's, a, there's a term called um, the stage of imminent achievement. And so, and what that means is, um, is that where you're most susceptible to abuse is where your trajectory is on that line. Okay. And so, you know, you could be an up and coming athlete. That's why we don't see, like when you say, oh, it's an elite athlete, you're 12, 13 years old, and you had a trajectory. We don't get to see what that trajectory is going to be. You were harmed at that point. Oh, okay. But that's where the most dangerous point is for any athlete. So, and so some sports mature at a later age. So like in cycling, I think you have to be 18 to even compete in the Olympics. So oh. the same, they have the same curve of being, of where they, where the abuse, where the most vulnerable abuse risk is, but their age is different than gymnastics, right? So gymnastics is down oh. at 13, 
swimming is at about 15 and then cycling is like at 19, 20, you know, so mm. like where they're about to hit their stage of imminent achievement, if not older, because you're generally have, you know, more matured body and training to be in that kind of a sport, you know, so. So it's, and then, so people don't know what's happening in cycling because you're considered of age. So you don't get the same, and there's less people that participate in the sport. So you have to look at like, you know, so when you look at this trajectory, like where that peak age is, and that's like where you're going to see the most harm. And that's where you need to focus on the most resources in those particular areas to prevent that. Sure. So... Things start happening and you feel like you can't compete in 82 in the Commonwealth Games. Not even just can't. I was, I qualified, but was not selected. Okay. That's wow. Okay. Well, you know, my wow. coach was the selector of the team. Okay. And so even though I qualified in four events and there was absolutely no reason for it. Huh. It, 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 it makes you wonder about how things were back then versus now and how that could even be possible, you know? Yeah, it's, you know, and I just saw the other day, uh, it was something, I, I, the only thing that caught my eye in this situation was, is that the British swim team was going to have to select the team versus just do qualifying. And I was like, oh, here we go. We not learned anything. How, how can mm. you that shift? And I think it was for the Olympics or it works. It was for one of the, you know, whether it was Commonwealth Games, it was something. And I'm like, wow, you reverted back to that. Hmm. Like, that should be like a never revert back to. Right, right. I could and see that's that. where team sports, right? And that's the difference between individual and team sports, right? There's so much subjectivity to um, your role or participation on the team. I mean, there's hmm. stats and, you know, that you can point to. But, hmm. you know, it's kind of... Like you look at football and I imagine, you know, people get credit for things versus the guy who was in the right spot on the field who allowed the movement to go that way that give the person the tackle. You know what I mean? But they don't get credit for it. Right. right so, right. you know, so it's it's, you know, so when you when you look at it like more encompassing, you know, it kind of changes. It changes. your Sure. So. Well, here's here's a question, and and I know that I've I've heard you do interviews and and talk about this before, but so you have dual citizenship, and you know becoming an Olympic athlete is is one of the reasons for doing that was to honor your dad. Is that why you decided to pursue the British team versus the American team? Uh yeah, no, it was um. It was absolutely everything to do with like following in my dad's footsteps, it, you know, and, and my, I mean, all my family is, is British. They all still today. I mean, you know, it's like all my cousins, they all live in London and, you know, it's the only, we're the Americans, like the Americans, <laughs> you know, like, right. you know, so, um, yeah, I mean, it's even, um, I mean, I write about my, you know, wanting to represent America. I mean, I write about that in my book and this, this, um, picture of me on the front is actually from an ad um, from USA Swimming. Wow. And so I was actually the poster child for USA Swimming for like 20 years. So when I wrote about all that in the book, how it all lines up to all of it. Yeah. You know, sort of, you know, weird, weird events and synchronistic events and, you know, that kind of lead you down this path. But, um, but I certainly feel, 
you know, sort of patriotic and as well at the same time. And, and when I talk about that moment when I was eight, the other thing that I didn't bring up that I certainly talk about in my book is there was a, there was a British swimmer by the name of uh, David Wilkie. There was two of them, David Wilkie and Duncan Goodhue, but I'm pretty sure it was David Wilkie in 76 who won the gold medal in the 200 breaststroke. And so, and because I was watching the Olympics every night with my dad, I was mostly watching my neighbor and we shared this like, you know, excitement for this neighbor who's on the US team, right? I'm like so excited and, you know, for like, you know, multiple reasons for that. But then when David Wilkie came on, my dad and his excitement to Mm. see a British swimmer win a gold medal, Mm. which he would, you know, because America was dominant. Right. You know, and like the British have always been great swimmers, but especially in breaststroke, I think it's a tradition. I mean, it's mm. like if they don't win the gold medal at some point, I think they've won most of them for like the last, you know, sort of 30 years. Wow. If you look back at, you know, at the history of that. But that was like when I first noticed our divide mm. because he he was a Brit through and through like he was. And the reason he came to America was because he was a doctor and in you know, there's only sort of room for one prominent doctor in your field and in the UK because of their national health system. So, you know, so that's what he came to the U.S. for, to pursue this. And, and, and I, and I wanted to, Mm. you know, but I also wanted to please my dad, you know, and so it's that, it's the combination of, um, you know, I, I just knew we were divided. And after the 84 Olympics and I'm at Texas, is when and just struggling and just you know struggling in silence um and that's when i wanted to pursue and switch and i was having shoulder surgery and and it just but at the same time i didn't have the the voice like i didn't have um i didn't have an advocate i didn't have the same advocate that i had when i was three and a half and i got into swimming you know Hmm. like that advocate had gone Hmm. like that, that advocate was for uh you know, greatness to protect me, uh, you know, to, 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 to guide me in my passion, if you will. It wasn't, it wasn't the same advocate that was like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm here to, you know, to help you become an Olympian. I'm not here to help you. And, and I say this sort of metaphorically, not, you know, in actuality, I'm not, you know, so it just, it's that fear. It's a fear of loss. It's a fear of losing, you know, my dad and, and that relationship and what would that look like sure thanks for listening to part one of my conversation with Catherine Stark be sure to tune in to the next episode where you can hear the conclusion of that conversation thanks for tuning in and I'll talk to you guys next time bye everybody thanks for listening to Relationships and Revenue I'd love to get your thoughts on the show two ways you can do that are to give us a rate and review and or connect with me on social media. You can find me at John Hewlin. Thanks again for listening. And remember, passion gets you started. Purpose keeps you going. Have a great day and we'll see you next time. Bye.